if you have your Bibles, will you open to the book of Revelation? Revelation. If you don't know where that is, it's at the end of the Bible, so just open to the very back and go forward a couple pages. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. This morning we're continuing our series for the month of July, looking at different passages in Scripture that sometimes we miss quote we misunderstand we don't get the full context of what is being said and we take it out we take it out of context really a lot of the times and so we're just looking at a few of these and seeing what these passages are truly saying the book of revelation was written by john the apostle while he was exiled on the island of patmos in chapters two and chapters three of the book of Revelation, we find this, this vision. The book of Revelation, so while John was writing, he, was, he, he had a vision from the resurrected Christ, and Christ commissioned him to write the prophecy. And in chapters 2 and 3, we find that John is commissioned to write to seven separate churches, seven different distinct letters. These churches would have sat close to one another. We almost formed a circuit if you looked at it on a map so that the messenger would have been able to go from church to church delivering the letter that the Lord had for them. As you read through the seven letters in chapters two and three, you find that all the letters begin the same way and all the letters end the same way, but they're different in the, in the meat of what the letter was saying. They were personalized towards each individual church. The letters begin with a introduction to the churches so you know who it's being written to and at the beginning of each letter Christ also describes himself with different Christological attributes which just means that he's he's giving different ways showing who he is showing how and why he is God so when he introduces he introduces himself as as God in different ways to each church and at the end of each letter it ends with the phrase whoever has ears let them here. So the readers of each letter would have been called upon to pay close attention and seek God's wisdom concerning what was written. This was important. These, these letters were, it was expedient that they got these and that they paid attention to what Christ was saying to each church. So today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, looking at the church in Laodicea. The city of Laodicea sat in the Lycus River Valley. The Lycus River was just a river that ran through Asia Minor, and it was a, it was a fertile valley which it sat in. It's in present-day Turkey today. The city of Laodicea had two major road systems that ran through it. It had one road system that ran north to south, and it had another road system that ran east to west, and these road systems connected the churches, the, the, or the, the city there in Laodicea to, to major ports. And because of this, it became a place that was extremely prosperous. It became a commercial center. Laodicea was known as one of the major centers of trade for all of Asia Minor. So wealthy was the city of Laodicea that following a earthquake in AD 60, Laodicea rebuilt the whole city itself without any assistance from the Roman Empire. The Roman historian Tacitus said of the city, Laodicea arose from the ruins, 
by the strength of her resources with no help from us. However, as we'll see this morning, despite its material prosperity, the church at Laodicea was spiritually bankrupt. This church is one of, or is the only church out of the seven churches which did not receive any praise or commendation for what was going on there in the churches from Jesus. This church was a church that was complacent, a church that was self-sufficient. It was a church that by all means had everything but the main thing. So this morning, as we look at this text together, I want us to see the church that makes Jesus sick. That's the title for today's message, the church that makes Jesus sick. In Revelation chapter 3, if you will join me starting in verse 14. In verse 14, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. White raiment that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear and anoint your eyes with my eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, and therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also ever overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our message. Dear Lord, again, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, Lord, that we can go to the Bible and have confidence that we are reading the very exact words of God. Lord, I pray that as we look at the church at Laodicea, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, Lord, that we would walk away transformed and changed. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you as Savior, that they would call upon your name for salvation. Lord, I pray that you would just help me to be clear in the message. I pray that you would give me wisdom, direction, discernment. Hide me behind the cross, Lord, that Jesus may be big and I small. Lord, bless this message. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In verse 14 of chapter 3, Jesus begins by introducing himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. In the Old Testament, God is literally the God of the amen. We find that in Isaiah 65, 16. What that means is that he is the God of of truth. He is the God who is completely trustworthy and completely truthful. When we say amen, what we're saying is that I agree that what you're saying is right. And God is saying, I am the ultimate trustworthy and truthful one. 
this description of Christ stands in stark contrast to the actual condition of the church at Laodicea. Christ is reliable. They are not. Christ is faithful. They are not. Christ is the one and only true witness, but the church at Laodicea has no witness at all. As Jesus begins his rebuke, it's as if he is trying to remind us and reminding the church there that you may not trust the words, you might not trust the dependability and the witness of some people, but you can always count on and trust what I have to say. I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. Jesus begins his letter to Laodicea with an immediate rebuke of their spiritual condition. As you read through all of these seven letters in chapter two and three, you will find that Jesus begins his, his examination of them with the words, I know your works. I know. I know. If, if anybody knows, God knows. You know, we, we can hide and we can play and we can, from the outside, everything can look good, but God knows our works. It's as if Jesus begins by reminding them and us of the inseparable relationship between our faith and our works. Jesus judges each church according to their works because as James reminds us, James the brother of Jesus tells us that true faith produces good works. You know, where we're quick to quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it's by grace that we are saved, not of our works. And I agree, I love that verse. It's a powerful verse. That's a reassuring verse that there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor, that it's only grace that is given to me. But oftentimes we fail to go to verse 10. One verse later where then Paul says that though we are saved by grace, that we are created for good works. The works of the Christian and the, the deeds of the church are the thermometers of our spiritual temperature. The things which we spend the most time on, the things which we spend the most energy, the most money towards reveal our relationship with God. Are we spending more time receiving or are we spending more time serving? Are we spending more money on fellowships or are we spending more money on missions? Are we spending more energy on maintaining our buildings or on reaching the lost? One commentator said that faith and works are as inseparable as the sun and its rays. Listen, faith is the sun and our good works are then the rays that are produced by the sun. If Jesus were to write a letter to the church at Landmark, I wonder what he would say. Would we be known for our labor and patience like the church at Ephesus? Would we be known for our faith amid trial and tribulation like the church at Smyrna? Or would we be known for being a lukewarm church that's useless to the Lord, like the church at Laodicea. Verse 15, verse 15, he says, I know thy works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. In verse 
15 and 16, Jesus says that you are lukewarm. You're not cold. You're not hot. You're somewhere in the middle. You know, often a common interpretation of this text is that hot means on fire for God. And cold means that we are antagonistic and directly oppose the things of God. You know, it's been taught from this text that the Lord would prefer outright rejection. That God, he said, I I wish you were cold or hot. It's been taught that Jesus would prefer us to just totally deny him than for us to straddle the fence. You know, as Wednesday we were talking in, you know, I agree with what Brother Richard said. There's, There's some things that's good preaching, but it's not good Bible. And I believe this is one of those texts where we look at, I I don't believe that that is what Christ is teaching here. You know, that makes a good message. That makes a good sermon. But we want to be true to the text. Laodicea sat near two other cities in the Lycus Valley. Heropolis sat to the north. And Colossae sat to the east. Heropolis was known for its hot medicinal springs. Colossae was known for its cold, pure, refreshing water. As Jesus said these words, no doubt those would have been the first two things that came to their mind about hot and cold water, that their sister cities had hot water, their sister city had cold water, because despite its wealth and its strategic location at the intersection of two major roads, the city of Laodicea had one disadvantage. The city of Laodicea lacked a permanent supply of good water. They had to pipe water from springs to the south through aqueducts. If you learned about the the Roman Empire, you know that they would use aqueducts to to transfer their water a lot. And so they, they piped this water from the south through these Roman aqueducts. And by the time the water would have arrived in the city, the water would have been lukewarm. It said that visitors unaccustomed to the water there, upon drinking it, would immediately spit it out. See, cold water is invigorating. Cold water is refreshing. Hot water is healing. Hot water is therapeutic. Both of those are wonderful. But what is terrible is the useless, lukewarm water of Laodicea. The text doesn't present a spectrum with two different extremes that we're either hot for Jesus or we're cold against Jesus and that there's some sort of wishy-washy middle, but instead it presents two opposing points. That which is pleasing and beneficial and that which is disgusting and useless. Jesus says, I wish that you were hot or cold. I wish that you were useful to me. I wish that there was some benefit to the kingdom of God because of your church there. He says, you are providing neither healing for the spiritually sick, nor refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. Instead, you're lukewarm. You're good for nothing. Your works are useless. And because of that, I want to vomit you from my mouth. Listen, don't miss that that imagery that Jesus is giving there. This is a harsh word that, that, that Jesus wants to vomit a church from his mouth. He wants nothing to do with that church there. Think about when you have a cup of hot coffee. And some time's gone past since you've drank it. And you pick that cup of hot coffee up and you go to take a sip. And it's no longer hot. 
but it's lukewarm. That natural reaction, this is disgusting, this is repulsive to me, I want to spit this out, was the same exact way that Jesus felt about the works at the church at Laodicea. You know, and while this is harsh and critical and damning, as you continue to read into verse 17, I believe that we find that it was not unfounded. It was not an unfair evaluation of the church at Laodicea. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Because you say, I am rich, I am increased with goods, I have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you are naked. In verse 17, we find that the church there at Laodicea had become useless to the Lord because they had become prideful and self-sufficient, in need of nothing. I'm rich. We have it all. We don't need anything else. You know, church historians believe that this church was most likely planted by Epaphras. Epaphras was a co-laborer of Paul. Epaphras was the one that planted the church at Colossae, and this city sat not too far from it. Actually, when you read through the book of Colossians, Paul includes that he wants the church at Colossae to share their letter with the church at Laodicea, and he tells the church there also to then read the church from Laodicea. Now, that's not this letter speaking up here. That's a letter that's been lost, but there was some type of relationship between these two churches. It was a church that was planted, it was founded with good roots. A church that was not planted by a heretic. It's a church that was not planted by a false believer. So in the beginning, when this church was first founded, they were given the true gospel message. They were given right doctrine. But somewhere along the line, they lost their way. Somewhere along the line. And it take very long because John writes this about AD 90. So you say 60 or so years and 60 years of their history. They begin to get this sense that they have everything that they need. The church was growing. The bank accounts were full. They didn't need anybody's help, including the Lord. You know, sadly, this happens so often, both corporately in our churches, and also individually in our own lives. We start on fire, passionate, seeking God's blessing and hand in our life. Listen, we ask God to bless us financially. We seek him. We earnestly and fervently pray, Lord, bless me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Bring me good health, Lord. Heal, uh, heal me from my sickness, Lord. Bring me a spouse. And in these times of great need, we seek the Lord with all that we have. We pray for God to grow our church. We pray for God to pay off our mortgage. We pray for God to accomplish the next building project, whatever it may be. There's different things that we all have these pointed times where it seems like all of our energy are going towards this one thing. Lord, if you would just do this one thing. And sadly, as soon as God begins to bless with whatever the thing may be, often we begin to cool off. When God begins to bless us, we 
get the things, but we lose God in the process. Success often breeds pride in a false sense of self-satisfaction, a false sense of self-sufficiency. You know, this whole time I'm praying for God to bless me with a car, and when I finally get that car, I'm saying, look at what I've been able to accomplish. Look at what I've built. We're praying that God would add to our church, and as soon as the church starts to grow, well, look at how passionate the the members are. Look how charismatic the leader is, and it becomes about what we did, and we forget that it's only because of God that we even are where we are. Listen, in our blessings, we grow complacent in our blessings, we lose that fervor, we lose that, we lose that zeal, we lose that passion and lose sight of our need for God. And in the process, like the church at Laodicea, we become useless. Because the church at Laodicea had been blessed with the material things of the world, they had become spiritually uncommitted and compromising. Tony Evans says of this church that, The external appearance of prosperity was not indicative of the condition of their hearts or their level of fellowship with God. Listen, from the outside, this was a church that was growing. From the outside, this was a church that no doubt had beautiful facilities. They no doubt had a vibrant kids ministry. I'm sure that the parking lot was full every single Sunday. From the outside, it appeared to be healthy. It appeared to be thriving. Listen, but Jesus says inside it was spiritually bankrupt. The church was self-satisfied. The church was self-sufficient. And the church believed that they were without need. Yet Jesus then tells them, truly, you are wretched. You are pitiful. You are poor. You're blind and you're naked. Listen, you think that you have everything that you could ever want, but truly you're in need of even the most basic necessities of life. Look at verse 18 with me. In verse 18, he says, I counsel thee to buy of me. Listen, therefore, because you're wretched, because you're pitiful, because you're poor, because you're blind, because you're naked, therefore, I counsel you, I, 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 I inform you, I'm, I'm telling you, buy from me. Jesus reminds them that the physical things which they possess can be gone in a second. The treasures they possess are susceptible to moth and rust and to the thief. But Jesus offers a treasure that no man can take. He offers treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves cannot break in and steal. He offers a true and everlasting treasure. Listen, the comfort and the arrogant attitude of the city had started to bleed in and infiltrate and deceive the church that was there. And Jesus tells them, he says, stop buying what the world is selling you. Stop buying what society is peddling to you and buy from me riches that never fade away. In verse 18, Jesus uses a sense of irony. He points to three different areas where the church at Laodicea would have felt completely self-sufficient and shows them how they actually are inadequate and deficient. He shows them how they truly are wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. 
He gives them three things that they need to be spiritually wealthy. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Listen, he said, you need my riches because you are poor. Listen, what a slap in the face. I mean, this is a church that is rich. This is a church. This would be like going to Hollywood Hills and going to a board meeting. They're saying, you guys are all poor. You know, how, how um, just, how, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, it's just not a, that's, oh, I can't think of the word. It's all right. It's a slap in the face. He says, because you are poor, you need to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Laodicea at this time had become a center of banking. Laodicea had its own gold exchange. The Roman Empire actually used the gold exchange that was there in the city of Laodicea. By all means, they were already rich. But Jesus says the riches that they had was like a fool's gold. It's not the real thing. Listen, real gold has been refined in fire to remove all of the impurities. As you study throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find that gold refined in fire is symbolic of true faith. Listen, Jesus says, y'all need some faith. You need not just faith, you need true faith. The Laodiceans had prospered in society. They had everything that they could have ever wanted And because of that, their faith never had a chance to be tested. And it caused them to grow self-sufficient. It caused them to forget their need for the Lord. This was a church that enjoyed the perks without the persecution of being a Christian. Jesus is telling them, forsake the riches of the city. Forsake the comforts of society. Be serious about following me. Listen, because as you follow Jesus, you're going to go through some fiery trials. You're going to be placed into the furnace. Oh, but listen, when you get out on the other side of the furnace, when you get out on the other side of those fiery trials, your your faith will be tested and tried and shown as the genuine and real thing. Sometimes when our faith has grown lukewarm, When we become spiritually idle, it takes some fiery furnace trials to get our eyes back on the Lord. You know, don't ever despise those times of life. Don't ever despise the fiery furnace. Don't ever despise the trials and tribulations that you go through. Because when you depend on God, when you lean into God during those times, when you come out the other side, you'll be complete. You'll be purified. And as you come out the other side with your faith still intact, those will be those times in life where you can look back and you say, listen, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't change it for a thing. As genuine gold, not fool's gold that you've attained just by playing church, by following Christ nominally by being a cultural Christian. And then he says, you need my righteousness because you are naked by my garments. Laodicea was also a city that was famous for its wool. There was a textile center in Laodicea that produced a black, glossy wool that was woven into garments. It was a prized 
wool in the Roman, in, in the Roman Empire. The, the rich would walk around, they'd have these black tunics, these black robes that came from these sheep that were only able to be raised in the city of Laodicea. Listen, while the city was famous for its black garments, Jesus says, buy from me white garments, that you should be truly clothed and your nakedness be revealed. White garments symbolize Christ's righteousness that he gives to us. It symbolizes the purity of the saints. As you keep reading through the book of Revelation, it talks about white garments and white robes multiple times of the saints and those who are sitting around the throne will be robed in white Jesus says, be robed in my righteousness. Listen, self-sufficiency breeds self-righteousness. When you become prideful, when you become arrogant, when you lose sight of your daily need for the Lord's forgiveness and grace. Laodicean Christians walked about spiritually naked. They were completely unaware of their humiliation. They were completely unaware of their need for pure white righteousness that was available only through Christ. And then he says, you need my remedy. You need my riches. You need my righteousness, and you need my remedy. Because you are blind, anoint your eyes with my eye salve. Laodicea was the location of a major medical school that was known worldwide for its eye salve. It's 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 eye ointment that was made from a local stone. The church was blind to their spiritual condition. They were blind to their foolishness. You know, oftentimes we are spiritually blind. Oftentimes we fail to see our self-sufficiency. We fail to see our own self-righteousness. The honest evaluation is essential for spiritual restoration. Self-sufficiency and complacency are the spiritual cataracts that shut out the light of spiritual sight. Regularly, daily, we need to ask the Lord in prayer by the word, show me my true spiritual condition. Reveal to me my spiritual blind spots and areas of sin that I'm no longer able to see Help me, Lord, to see myself as you see me. Look, the church at Laodicea was buying what the world was peddling to them, a Christianity without Christ. And in their riches, they had become useless. They had become spiritually idle. And Jesus rebukes them of their condition. But understand that the Lord's criticism is based on his love. In verse 19, in verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Proverbs 3, 12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Listen, there's times when we've gotten so far from God. We've become so callous to his calling and his conviction in our life that he has to get our, our, our attention some way or another. Rebuke is an act of love because you don't want to see someone you love Go down a path that is deadly. You know, as parents, we have to rebuke, we have to chasten our children because we 
loved them. You know, I'm sure you guys have heard this too. My mom used to always tell me, this hurts you, or this hurts me. Sorry, it felt like it hurt me more. This hurts me more than it hurts you. You know, it's that love, that, that rebuke, that she didn't want to see me go down the wrong path. If you were to study the text in the original language, what's interesting about this text here is the kind of love that is expressed. In the Bible, there's, there's three different kind of loves that we see in the Bible. The word translated love in the English is really three different words in the Greek. The first one is eros. Eros speaks of a, a physical, a sexual love. The second is phileo. Phileo speaks of a brotherly, tender, compassionate, friendly type of love. And agape speaks of an unconditional love. When we see the love of God, it's usually in the context of agape, love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Listen, God loves us all unconditionally. There's nothing that you could do to cause God not to love you. But in this text, the love that is used is phileo. It's a tender affection, a brotherly love, the most undeserving of all the churches is the one for which Christ declares the kindest feelings. And the even more beautiful truth about this passage is that even though Jesus is utterly repulsed by this church, he doesn't write them off. You know, when you are in Christ, down never means out. But Jesus says you have a right, uh, you have a chance to right your wrongs. That this reputation that you've built for yourself as lukewarm and useless and complacent does not have to be final. He says, be zealous and repent. This should always be our response to the rebuke of the Lord. When God convicts us of something in our life that's just not right, we should passionately and immediately repent of our sins and turn back to our Savior. Listen, in verse 20, Jesus is actively calling the church at Laodicea to repent. And the first step is to let him back in. Listen, in verse 20, it all begins to come together. It all begins to make more sense, and we get a clearer picture of what truly is going on there in Laodicea. In verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and, I, and opens the door, I will come in and I will sup. I will have dinner with him and he with me. Verse 20 is often used in the context of evangelism with the unbeliever, that those who are not saved, Christ is knocking on your heart. But as we've seen throughout this text, Christ is talking to his church. He's not talking to the unbeliever, but he's talking to the ones that have professed him, that have said that he is Lord of their life. The church as a whole has left Jesus on the outside. The ones who he died for, the establishment that he created, that he is the head over, left him waiting to come back in. The church had become useless because they had everything but the main thing. The church at Laodicea had grown stagnant. It had grown lukewarm. It had grown spiritually idle. It was useless. 
They let their material success and blessing cause them to become indifferent, cause them to lose sight of their need for the Lord. And Jesus calls this church to repent and overcome, as you see in verse 21. You know, often we look at the Laodicean church as the ultimate example of the apostate church, the church that you do not want to be like. But as you look at church history, it reveals to us that this church actually heeded God's call. In A.D. 166, 70 years after the letter to the Laodiceans, Sargis, a bishop in Laodicea, a pastor that was there, died a martyr. He was killed for standing for his faith. At the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, the Council of Nicaea is perhaps one of the most famous historical Christian events. It was at this council where a gathering of bishops got together and the deity and the eternality of Christ and the Trinity were affirmed in the church in the midst of a lot of heretical teaching that was going on. And at this council of Nicaea, the bishop from Laodicea was present. And then 40 years later, there was another council of bishops to uphold Christian orthodoxy, and it was held in the city of Laodicea, a city, a church that was repulsive to the Lord, went on to be used greatly by him because they responded to his word. Because no matter how far you've got, no matter how far you've strayed from the Lord, it's never too late to come back. It's never too late to be made right with God. It's never too late to be forgiven and to be useful for the kingdom once again. You know, my question this morning is how are we going to respond to the word? How do we respond to the word when God works in our heart? Do we repent and be zealous or do we just continue on in our sin? I don't believe it'd be too unwise or too far off to say that many churches today are reminiscent of the Laodicean church. Churches that are more focused on themselves than the lost. Churches that are more concerned with buildings and things of comfort than souls and the glory of Christ. Churches that were once on fire for the Lord, but have become spiritually idle. Churches that in Christ's eyes are sickening, will vomit 